Everyone, good to see you. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to the book of Ephesians, shall we? Uh, My job this morning is to provide an overview of the book of Ephesians uh, to lead us into our series. We're going to be dealing with uh, every verse, every chapter uh, with thoroughness. Uh, so we, this, this is going to be big brush strokes this morning, okay, just so that you're aware of that. It's a, a great opportunity for us to, to try and get a, a handle on what, what is Paul doing in writing this book of the Ephesians and, uh, and what exactly is God telling us through the book of Ephesians. And my encouragement for you is uh, to read through the book of Ephesians every day this coming week, okay. It will probably take you about 16 minutes. It will take you about 21 minutes if you're reading it out loud. Uh, 90 minutes if you're from Northern Ireland. Um, You do speak a little bit quicker, admittedly. Um, But what I want to do is I just want us to read just a little snippet, which I feel for us is just a little bit of a doorway into the whole book of Ephesians. And you find it in Ephesians chapter 2. Now, if you're new to church this morning, you have a Bible in your hands and someone just put it there. Uh, When we say Ephesians, that's the book name. Chapter is the big, bold number, and when we say verse 8, that's the tiny little number that's tucked in away amongst the text. So, Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart to see you, to receive from you the wisdom that you would impart to us through your glorious word. And we pray you would teach us and help us get to grips with this book of Ephesians. Help me as I preach. Help these dear friends as they listen in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 1630, a man by the name of John Winthrop stood aboard the deck of a ship called the Arabella and addressed people who were sailing from England to America to start a new life. And Winthrop, who became the governor of a new colony near where Boston is just now, shared something of of his vision for this new society that they were about to enter into and that they were going to grow and develop together. Here's what he said. We must knit together as one man. We must entertain each other in brotherly affection. We must delight in each other, make each other's conditions our own, rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together, always having before our eyes our commission and community in the work as members of the same body. So shall we keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Isn't that an inspiring vision for a new community? Doesn't it sound great? Nearly 300 years 
later, in 1928, another speech was given, this time by a man called Herbert Hoover, as he campaigned towards the presidency of the United States. And his speech was very different from Winthrop's. The title of Hoover's speech, I think, says it all. It was called the Rugged Individualism Speech, in which Hoover promoted an every-man-for-himself ideal for their society. Quite different, isn't it? Black and white. And surely less attractive. Well, I was at a pastor's conference last week and heard... uh, Two guys, Tim Keller and David Wells, talk about the society, the culture that we live in. And in summary, they were saying that although we, as a people nowadays in the 21st century, are more connected than ever before, communicating with more people than ever before, actually, the cultural analysts are telling us that we are lonelier than ever before. And there's something deceptive about it. I think Facebook even proves that, doesn't it? I mean, let me ask you two questions. Number one, how many friends do you have? Number two, how many friends do you have? You know it. We live in a culture where we have proximity, but no community. We have connections. Very few affections. You might say, well, that's society, Liam. This is the church. This is Edinburgh, Liam. That's Edinburgh, Liam. This is Charlotte Chapel. Well, we're different, aren't we? Are we? I believe churches throughout this nation have been infiltrated by the same kind of rugged individualism that Hoover talked about. And this to the detriment of our walk with Christ and subsequently our witness to the world. People out there who do not know Jesus get a very confused message about Jesus because we look just like those that Hoover idealized. We think of ourselves as independent. We don't need anyone else to be who God wants us to be. It's a personal relationship with God after all, isn't it? I believe that's individualism. And here's the thing. God does not believe in individualism when it comes to his church and when it comes to forming this new society, this new humanity, this new body, this new household. He has a number of ways to describe it. And this is what Ephesians tells us. In bold, italics, and underlined. It's about community. Ephesians tells us that God has this magnificent and a great plan to gather together a people to essentially form one new man, remade in Christ, reconciled to God, indwelt with, uh, by the Holy Spirit and vitally, vitally united together with other believers and this for one great purpose, to witness to Christ and to walk and work towards one great end, the summing up of all things in Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. Tell me you're excited about Ephesians. I can't wait. It's a thrilling book. I'm sorry if I give you a fright at that point. Um, it is. 
I must build up more gradually. There you go, yes. We're excited about this. This is, a, this is a book for the church. It's a book for the church to equip the church to be a new man, one new man united together. Not for our inward building up of our own little community where we can keep our own little holy huddles, but no, so that we are outward looking. So that arms are outstretched. So that mouths are open, sharing the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, not in a manner that is worthy of the gutter. That's what we've come from. This is what Ephesians is about. And I want us to think this through um, in three main points this morning to give something of an overview. Number one, one new man, chapters one to three. Number two, one great aim, chapters four to six. And then I'll finish with number three, one great end. But let me tell you just again how how important this is for us. I think there are a lot of similarities between Ephesus and the region surrounding Ephesus called Asia Minor and Edinburgh. Um, Of course, Ephesians is written by the Apostle Paul to Ephesians, but the interesting thing about the letter of the Ephesians is it doesn't seem to have one very distinct uh, purpose or target that Paul is writing to. So in the, the book of Galatians, Paul writes... These guys are kind of deserting the gospel in many respects. So he is writing and he starts off very clearly, I'm astonished that you're deserting this. But there's nothing like that in Ephesians. Ephesians is far more a kind of a a, a circular letter, if you like, with a general purpose. So here is what the church is. And it's really quite easily divided into two, one to three. This is what God has done. And four to six, this this is what we are to do, therefore, in response. Ephesus was the third biggest city, uh, I suppose, at the time. Only Rome and Alexandria were bigger. And they were, they were quite a city, as we heard even from, uh, uh, from Acts 19 that was read for us earlier. They were a multicultural, cosmopolitan society, just like we are in our city. Many people living together, many people worshipping different gods. They worshipped Diana of the Ephesians or Artemis, the, the goddess there. Uh, as we read in Acts 19. Uh, but that's just one of 300 at the time. There were countless uh, idols worshipped at that time, as there are today for us in Edinburgh. So there are many, many similarities between Ephesus and Edinburgh. And um, there are certainly things that we should learn from the Ephesian letter that Paul was writing to them about. So let's have our Bibles open uh, in front of us and let's look at chapter 1, first of all. I read, the reason I read from Ephesians 2, by the way, was just to say that that verse 10 is so important to understanding the letter, I think. It starts off by saying, we, as in the church, a body of believers, are God's workmanship. So we are created, fabricated is a Greek word in there, manufactured by him in and through Jesus Christ himself. So it's founded on the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, his, his death and resurrection. Uh, and what, for what purpose? Well, this is what 4 to 6 tell us, to do good works. In other words, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. So this is one new man that we are called to be. We're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Look at chapter 1 with me. Basically, in the biggest brushstroke you have in verses 1 to 14, Paul gives us 
quite incredibly, a sneaky peek into the eternal throne room of heaven where we see that before even the creation of the world, the plans and the purposes of God are laid out. I pictured this, you know, just the Trinity gathered around this, this table with a blueprint for, for all of creation, for all of eternity, laid out for us to see. And as was highlighted earlier, as it says in verse 5 and in verse 7, this according to his good pleasure and will, according to the riches of his grace, the formation of the world and the formation of this one new man, one new society, the church, occurs. How? Well, I think we see in this section, by the electing love of God the Father who adopts us into his family, by the redeeming love of God the Son who sheds his blood for the forgiveness of our sins and clears the barrier away that would stop us from coming into his family, And thirdly, by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit who keeps us in the family until we receive the full spiritual blessing that await us in the heavenly realms. The Trinitarian work of God to bless the church. And that's why then Paul goes on in verses 15 to 23 to give us something of a a sneaky peek into his prayer life. Verse 17, here's, here's the gist of it. I keep asking that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation that you may know him better. What's the gist of that? I think in Paul's prayer, he's essentially saying, I'm, I keep on praying to God that you would grasp the significance of what it is that the triune God has been at work to call you, to pluck you from your sin, to form you into this one new man, to be a people. I want you to get this. Grasp your nature in Christ. Grasp what you are together with all the saints. And grasp what truly awaits you in the heavenly realms, every spiritual blessing in Christ. And he prays this so that they will know in the very present God's mighty work, God's mighty power at work in and through them. Incredible stuff. Into chapter 2, we see the people of God united by God, it's his work. Paul helps us really marvel at the formation of this one new man by reminding us that that really it's not anything that we have done to come into this family known as the church, Uh, but it's only by grace that we are gathered together to become the church. We're so inept, so unable to come that we are described in the worst possible terms in chapter 2 and verse 1, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Clearly, then, it is impossible for us to be a part of a church or to come to faith in Jesus Christ by our own doing, not unless, that is, God does something about our spiritual asystole. We're dead. But praise God, he is at work to raise the dead, to life, he, gives us, he, he leaves us in no doubt that, it's, that that is what he is about. He remakes us. He gives us new life in Jesus, breathes new life into us. And as we read, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. So the gathering of this one man, new one man together, 
is his work and his work alone. So no one can boast about it. No one can boast and say that they have done something to earn their way into a position or uh, in the church or, or as a, a, a believer or their position before God. Look at me, I, I'm so good that God must love me. That is not how it is. No, we are so sinful that Jesus had to die for us, but that he was still glad to do so. Chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, Paul continues on by telling us that not only are we brought near to God by the blood of Christ, we are brought near to other believers. So this is our unity, not just in a, in a vertical sense in, our, in terms of the reconciliation of our relationship with God, but in a horizontal sense in terms of our relationship with other people. When God gathers his church, whether that's universally throughout the world or even locally in a place like this, to form one new man, many of the things that so sadly divide people like ethnicity or race, social class, so on, they're removed. They're meaningless in the church. Dividing walls are bulldozed by the gospel and people from every nation, language and people group are gathered together. In fact, we are so vitally united so vitally united that we are described as one new man in verse 15. You see that? And it's not just, indeed, that, I mean, Paul specifically is talking here about Jews and about Gentiles, who previously there was hostility between the two, so Jews and non-Jews. But he's saying it's not just that Jews become Gentiles or Gentiles become Jews, it's that Jews and Gentiles become this whole new entity. Verse 15, one new man. And to emphasize the unity and their need for one another, actually. Verse 19a, Paul calls them one new society. Verse 19b, one new family. Verse 21, one new structure, a, 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 a building. And there's a reason for it too. And we see part of the reason in chapter 3. Look with me. Where we see the people of God, this one new man, commissioned by God. This one new man is given God's special message, which is the gospel. Paul talks pretty specifically in here in this first section about his personal commission as a preacher of the gospel. But in verse 7, he's really describing what we all are. We are all servants of the gospel when we are raised from the dead and given new life in him. Verse 7, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. This one new man, the church, is united in displaying God's glory, not only to the nations, though. This is an incredible thing. That is true. We are to take this gospel and proclaim it to all, whether they're here in Edinburgh or the far reaches of this earth. But incredibly, the uniting of this one man is commissioned by God not only to share the gospel and live out their unity so that others who do not believe may believe and come to faith in Jesus Christ, but that our testimony of our unity is such that it speaks volumes to those in the heavenly realms. What's he talking about there? Well, it sounds like he's talking about angels or demons. He doesn't specify which, but maybe the angels have something to learn, and certainly the demons have something to learn that what he's essentially saying is that this, the unity of the church, the continued gathering of the church, despite persecution, despite the trampling of the world at times, 
despite actually the, the faltering and the stumbling of the church at times, God is still building. God is still at work through the gospel to form a people for himself for his glory. And they will testify to those in the heavenly places. I am building my church. His intent, chapter 3, verse 10. Look with me, read this. It's incredible. His intent, God's intent, was that now through the church, that's us, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus. And then Paul finishes off this section with an appropriate prayer. <laughs> Just in case any of us, and I hope you are, feeling overwhelmed at this, the task of witnessing to the world and witnessing to the heavenly places. Verse 20, 21, read it with me. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to whose power? His. Isn't that a relief? His power. That is at work in us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God calls his church. That is what he has done. This is what we are called to. We are formed by God. We are united in God and we are commissioned by God. But for what purpose? This is where we go into chapter Four through to six. Remember that verse in 2.10? We, the church, are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 1. Paul wants us to go for a walk. <laughs> As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life Worthy of the calling you have received. The word uh, life, sorry, the word live in there is the word walk in the Greek. It's peripateo, meaning to move, to walk, and that's, that's a, a better way to put it. You could say, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling uh, which you have received. And that's Paul's desire. This is exactly what he turns to. As if to say, this is what God has done, chapters 1 to 3. And this is what now you're to do, chapters 4 to 6, with his help. How do we walk in a manner worthy of the calling we have received? How do we do that? How do we walk as one new man commissioned with the call uh, to proclaim and display the glory of God? Well, I think what we see, and we'll see as we walk through it a little bit more slowly, there are five occasions in chapters 4 to 6 where... Paul encourages the church to walk. Walk in this way. Walk, 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 walk. And then in the end, chapter 6, stand. Okay? So it's walk, 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 stand. That's what, a, a, a basic way to look at this. So in chapter 4, the first way that we do it is, is to keep in step with the Spirit by our walking. Verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Something which requires selfless humility on the part of every believer. Bearing with our differences. And that's a, that's a helpful thing to, to hear, isn't it? I mean, you might be, um, it might be acceptable for you to understand the things that I have already been saying, that when God calls his church to be one new man, well, uniformity is, is what is called for. Well, that's not true. 
We're all different in many ways. It's just that there are greater things that tie us. There are things that we will disagree on, but we are to bear with one another, and we are to do our, uh, our discussions and our conversations with one another and our life together without anger and with great care and selfless humility, just like Jesus, recognizing that divisions in the church will tend to breed atheism in the world. It's an important thing for us to remember. And of course, we are to keep in step with the Spirit by simply using the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to each and every one of us so that we can all play our part in contribution to this great thing that we are being called to. Verse 4. Uh, sorry, uh, I've lost it in my notes. I'm not sure where it is. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So we're to walk in unity with one another, uh, participating with one another in the fellowship. And in verses 17 to 32, we see that we must walk in contrast to the world. No long, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, it says in verse 17. You've been bought at a price by Christ's blood. You have been redeemed from your previous existence. Do not revert. Do not turn back that grieves the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed. But instead, Paul's encouragement for the church is to get rid of the old self. Remember who you are in Christ. Don't go after the old man again. It's been crucified and buried. And indeed, that's exactly what our friends are showing us today by their baptism. They're standing there, and as they're going down into the water, declaring, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. They're declaring that they have died to themselves and to that they are living for Christ. This is what Paul is encouraging. Do not revert to the old ways. So keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Chapter 5. Keep in step with Christ. Do you remember those books? I, well, I, I was going to say, do you remember those books that I had? But you would not know me when I was a child. Um, perhaps you did. If you did, I'm sorry. Um, I had these books when I was young. Uh, do you remember those books that, that were basically divided into three and you had, to, you had to flick the pages so that the body and the legs would match the head? Do you remember those? I do fondly. Um, I think that's something that Paul is trying to encourage us, us to think about here in chapter 5 where he's talking, uh, said in verse 1, Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. I think that what we are called to do is to be analyzing ourselves to the extent that we say, okay, does the body match the head? Or do we look like some kind of grotesque deformity that looks, looks nothing like Jesus? Because he is our head. He is the head of the church. He is the senior pastor of this church. He is the one who cares for us all and shepherds us all and commands us all. And we are glad in our obedience, aren't we? Do we look like our head, Jesus Christ? I think that's what, what Paul is looking at in chapter 5 when he's encouraging us to keep in step with Christ. Verse 15, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. The wisdom of God has been made known to us. Indeed, the wisdom of God has been given to us to share. Don't be unwise. Walk in the way. Wisdom loves making the most of Jesus Christ. Wisdom loves making the most of every opportunity. Wisdom loves speaking the truth in love to a brother or sister about their sin 
to help them deal with that so that we might together look more and more like our head, the Lord Jesus Christ. And wisdom is to be extended to our everyday relationships and how husbands and wives relate and how children and their parents relate and so on. And then chapter 6, this final call, particularly in verses 10 to 24, to stand strong in the Lord. The word stand mentioned here a number of times, even in this short section. Many of us know what it's like to, be, to have an ambition or to have something that we are moving towards and only to have a, a, an obstacle in the way. Many of us would know sometimes what that's like to have an enemy in the way who, wants, who opposes you and wants nothing for you but evil. But the church, we as one new man have such an enemy. But the good news Ephesians brings is that when our walk is interrupted, when the enemy attacks, God strengthens us and enables us to stand and to never, ever fall. Because why is that? Because Christ, our commander and our savior and our Lord has given us his armor to protect us. Remember chapter one, the Holy Spirit given to us to keep us. This is how he keeps us, through faith, salvation, through truth, through righteousness, all of these things together. It's a beautiful, glorious picture. Let me summarize it for you with a little picture. Let's have the picture on screen. What you have there is a picture of the church. A church that is formed to be one new man by God with a, with a specific responsibility to testify both to the world, the gospel, and to the heavenly places about Christ. That our life together is one where we are called to edify one another, to build one another up with the use of our spiritual gifts in the faith. And here's where we get to the real crux of it. God has this plan to form a new man commissioned to serve him and that we might walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, okay? One new man with one great aim. What is the great end? Well, it's that upward arrow from the church to glorify God. Look back with me to chapter one and let's see one great end. The praise of his glorious grace. A healthy church's life is profoundly God-centered, you know. It's one that moves in the direction of God's great plan being fully accomplished, not working against it and so becoming abrasive, but toward the, towards the, the goal of God's purposes and plans to bring everything together under Christ that he might be glorified fully. And a healthy church that, that does as chapter 4 to 6 tells us to walk in his ways reinforces and encourages this spread of the gospel but of course we know a manifestly unhealthy church undermines our proclamation and undermines our ability to truly glorify God we must be obedient we must be faithful by his grace and by his help to live not for ourselves but for him who loved us and died for us and here is the great crux of the plan in terms of the glorious mathematics of God's activity. To sum up all things in Christ. If look back at chapter 1 again. 
verse 10. The phrase in chapter 1, verse 10, which says, all things together under, is actually a translation of a single Greek word with a vivid picture in Greek mathematics. When we are adding numbers up without a calculator, we list the numbers by writing them one under the other, and then we draw a line at the foot of that column and write the total under the line. But the Greeks, well, they did it the other way around. They wrote the numbers in a column like we tend to do, but at the end, they drew the line above the column of numbers, putting the total above the line. That is literally, they summed up. Okay? And Paul here tells us that according to his glorious plan and purpose, God is going to draw a line at a point in the future where across the entire human story, writing Jesus Christ above the line as he sums up all things in him. This is the eternal purpose of God. Not merely a possibility to be aimed for or a plan that could possibly be thwarted. This is a destiny that will, according to his might and power, be infallibly fulfilled. This is the purpose of God who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, as it says in chapter 1, verse 11. In a real sense, this is already accomplished. In a real sense, this is exactly what we are moving towards. And quite simply, it is your tomorrow and my tomorrow. As Bruce Milne says, it is inscribed on every calendar in heaven. And however unacknowledged, it is also inscribed on every calendar on earth. It's what we're working towards. To this, every life, your life, my life, all of life, is moving, whether terrestrial like ours or celestial in the heavenly realms, every passing second is a step closer to the point when we will all acknowledge Jesus Christ. The big question is, will that acknowledgement of Christ be one of glad submission and ecstatic joy as it will be for the true church? as it will be for our brother and sister who have already stood here today and given testimony of their faith that they have in Jesus Christ? Or will that acknowledgement of Christ be one of trembling dread, as it will be those for those who refuse to come to him and receive his gracious offer of life eternal and faith to all who will believe in the name of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? who came into this world so that we might see God walk this earth, so that we might have a full revelation of the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ, that we may see him as he walks purposefully, according to plan, to the pivotal point of human history, the cross, on which he would die to take your sin and my sin upon himself as our substitute, dying in our place so that we don't have to pay the penalty for it. And in so turning away God's wrath from us, indeed taking it upon himself, that we might stand in life and receive an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. Life eternal with Jesus Christ in glory, every spiritual blessing in Jesus.
Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. Church, praise his great glory today. Friends, you're here today. You're not a Christian. You're welcome. Come to him. Confess your sin before him. Put your faith in him. Believe in the one he sent, Jesus Christ. Because all of this depends entirely upon what you believe about Jesus Christ today. Let's pray.